Praise the Lord. Um, now where do I start? He took all this part about me leaving Malaysia. Yeah, I grew up mainly in Malaysia, coming here in, uh, to Seattle, and then somehow I managed to get hired at Sedaris, and it's been a crazy, wonderful journey. Um, this past season, I think I've grown the most um, in knowing who I am and in knowing God's calling upon my life. Uh, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but moving to a new country can be really, really hard. A lot of big, big adjustments, like figuring out what foods I like and don't like, and the way people think, and the way things work in America, like recycling and tax. But most interesting of all, um, what I've learned the most that is really hard and really um, a challenge to navigate is what it means to be a Christian in America. Living in a post-Christian society for the first time in my life, um, Pastor Dave and Ryan have been helping me navigate through some of the roadblocks I've been facing in understanding the different expressions of faith, unpacking baggage that America has and trauma and hurt um, and disappointments that a lot of believers have when it comes to God, when it comes to church, when it comes to faith. Like, thank you, Pastor David Ryan, for teaching me all of that and making me understand. Um, and, I understand and, and I can see, I can see how easy it is to just fall into cynicism. I can, I can understand how tiring it is when you put an expectation on a God that doesn't seem to be present and powerful in your world. I understand how tempting, tempting it is to think, even, that maybe he's just not powerful and present in my world, but he's powerful and present in other people's worlds. And that's what I've been experiencing when I, when I share the ways that God has moved in my life. I share my testimonies. I share my stories. A lot of people are encouraged. A lot of people are encouraged just seeing me here today or seeing me here worship when I'm in the middle of waiting to be reunited once again with my husband. And yet I can still smile. I can still say that God is good. God is doing something. That's my faith. Um, in preparing this today, Pastor Dave really, really challenged me. He was like, dig deeper. Um, even Pastor Ryan, he's like, you need to find this language. You need to find why the truth, why, the, uh, why do you believe in what you believe and why you're experiencing God's power. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I'll think about it. I took the whole week to think about it. I lost a lot of sleep thinking about it. Um, but I feel like the fact that I'm able to share with you today about Psalms 33 is already a divine evidence of God's power working in my life and working in your life. Psalm 33 is a very special psalm. One commentary calls it the untitled psalm. Um, because the fact is they don't know who wrote it. Usually psalms are written by David, by Saul, um, by a psalmist, uh, by um, worshipers. And it's usually written in response to something, in response to a situation or a, an event, like God um, giving them um, victory over war. But this psalm just kind of, kind of comes up out of nowhere, and it just paints this big picture of our world in relation to God who created it our history in relation to the God who planned it, and finally to us as individuals and how God relates to us. Um, one commentary wrote that Psalm 33 
uh, is the most integrates some of the most basic themes of Hebrew Christian and Christian theology. It talks about creation, history, covenant, and the human response to worship, and how fundamentally they are all inseparable. This psalm is deeply relational, and I believe this psalm stands true for past, present, and future worshipers of God like you and me. And I wrote here, I'm going to be so bold as to say, um, since it's up for grabs, it's like an entitled psalm, I'm just going to call it Thai Psalm. (laughs) But my hope today is that you would come to a place that you would deeply and personally know the power of God, and that you would eventually have the confidence to say, this is my psalm. Amen? Um, And with that, I say amen a lot. So in Malaysia, with Filipinos, every line, there's an amen. (laughs) It's really easy to preach because I feel like sometimes they're not even listening and they're just agreeing with you. So you can preach anything in the Philippines and you're like a powerful preacher. So, um, but thank you. Thank you so much for your support and the love that all of you are showing me right now. Um, But yeah, I have two overarching points to my message today. The first point is, how is God's power revealed? And the second, how do I experience that personally? So the first, how is God's power revealed? Looking in Psalm 33, I just want to read the whole psalm through and point out the different sections or parts um, of what the psalmist writes in relation to the revelation of God's power. So Can we read that together? Um, Psalm 1 until 22. It's 22 verses. I should have brought a Bible here. You're right, Pastor Ryan. Oh, there we go. (laughs) It says here, rejoice in the Lord. So it's page 488. That's what we have to do here, right? Say the page. We have the Bible under the pews and everything. All right, page 48. It says here, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him. Is it lyre? Lear? Lear? Luray? Um, <laughs> make music to him with ten-string harps. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depth into storehouses. Let's the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plan of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has called to be his own possession. Verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. From his dwelling place, he forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look... The Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love. 
to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because he trusts in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Thus says the word of the Lord. Amen. Looking at it, the psalmist kind of breaks the psalms in, in six parts. The first is in verse 1 to 3, a command to praise. The second is in 4 and 5, the reason why we should praise. And the third is 6 to 9, the God of creation, his divine word. Then from 10 to 12, it's about God over, over government, his divine plan. 13 to 19, it looks at the God of humanity and individuals and his divine purpose. And lastly, he points back to praising this powerful God. So coming back to verses 1 to 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This is obviously Ty's psalm. Right off the bat, <laughs> these few verses already speak to me. It aligns with my conviction of why I love to worship. Why I'm loud in worship. Why I sing on the top of my lungs. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. But I think the most interesting thing here in the first three verses is who the psalmist commands to worship. He says, shout for joy, O you righteous, for praise befits the upright. Who is the righteous? Who are the upright? It's easy for me just to re repeat words that I hear from my home church, that when you hear righteousness, it just means being righteous in Christ Jesus. Before the psalmist, Christ is yet to be a reality. Who is he referring to when he says those words? Is he talking about people who live according to a strict moral standard? Is it only these kind of people that can worship? What if I feel anything but upright? What if I feel down wrong? <laughs> what if we're not able to live up to a perfect moral standard? Does that make us unworthy to partake in worship? And what is this talk about playing skillfully and singing a new song? What if you're not a musician? What if you're not a songwriter? We've had people literally write in our serving card, I can do anything except music. <laughs> Does that mean they're unworthy to partake in worship? Before we go into the how, the who, or the, yeah, how and the who, let's first look at the reason, the list of why we should worship God. And we'll come back to those three verses. Um, verse four to five says, for the Lord... For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. The psalmists, that's a hard word to say, the author's reason to why we should praise God comes across as matter-of-factly. He appears, he appeals to the nature of the word of God being upright and the nature of his work being done in faithfulness. This is also an interesting thing. I don't know. I didn't know how to write it down. The word, the word <laughs> that he uses here um, is actually a Hebrew word for yasar, which means this word does what it intends to do, that it is straightforward, that it is reliable. Any 
another way that this word is translated or this line is translated is Yahweh's promises does not deceive. The second line declares that the word of God is not just truthful, but his work is done in such a way that shows his dedication and his faithfulness. To simply put that he is committed. His word and his works, there is a commitment to it. There's a faithfulness to it. The word faithfulness in my sorry, in my translation, the word trustworthy is also used as the word faithfulness, in case we are not following on the same page right now. Um, in my translation, it says, all his work is done in faithfulness. Another way you can say it, it's trustworthy. But that word in Hebrew, is that word that's being used in Hebrew is the word hesed. And I think we've heard it a couple of times now. Hesed, the faithful covenant love of God. It's a type of commitment that is strong, that keeps going even when the other party ceases to be faithful. Verse 5 then begins to say he, he loves righteousness and justice. So just in those three lines alone, for me, I made it very simple in my head. I was like, in just those three lines alone, it shows me that God not only speaks what he intends to do, but when he says that he will do it, he is committed in doing it, even if I don't believe it. And he has standards. He loves righteousness and justice. The end of verse 5 proclaims that there is evidence of his steadfast, faithful, has said love here on this earth. So where is it, God? Where is this evidence? We take a look around, and sometimes all we see is brokenness, is pain, is injustice. Where is this evidence? Where is this line that the earth is full of Lord's unfailing love? How can we say that? And the author then proceeds to begin to dig deeper. What is his faithfulness? What does it look like? He shows the power of God and the evidence of his faithful love in creation. In verses 6 to 9, it begins with, By the word of the Lord, the heavens remain. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let the whole world fear the Lord. I just want to double check her in the same. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Verses 6 to 9 is saying that his has said love, his evidence is revealed in his power, which is revealed through his divine word and creation. The word breath the word breath here when it says in verse 6, by the breath of his mouth, all the hosts, all the stars by the breath of his mouth. <laughs> the word breath here is the word ruach, which suggests God's dynamic power, his omnipotence. Everything that you see that is made in the heavens, the universe came into being by his authoritative word and by his ruach, his dynamic, powerful word. He further paints the picture of God's dynamic power by basically saying that God holds the seas like we hold water in a bottle. That's great evidence of his love. But how is this evidence proved that he's faithful? I believe it's in, it's in the limit that he puts. It's in the reason why he contains the waters so that we as humans can live and thrive in an orderly, trustworthy environment. 
It basically points us back to how God formed the world in Genesis 1. He said the word and it came to be. And eventually he made Adam out of the dust and he breathed his ruah, his breath. I'm being Filipino here. Ruah. <laughs> he breathed his breath, his dynamic power, and gave life to the first man named Adam. He then put Adam within creation, and his plan and his purpose was for Adam to thrive and to prosper. But even after the fall, creation still obeys him. The sun still sets and rises. The oceans and the seas, no matter how treacherous um, its dynamic power is, it obeys the limit of which God set. I love this verse in Proverbs um, 8, verse 29. I have it in NLT. And it says here, I was there when he set the limits of the seas so they would not spread beyond their boundaries, when he marked off the earth's foundation. That is evidence of his faithful love. Not so much in the power of that he created it, but also in the power in that he controls and limits it for our good. Just going to a beach watching a sunset, and being able to see the waves crashing to the shore, not realizing that you have this underlying trust that everything that you're witnessing in nature is beautiful and it's powerful and it's not meant to destroy you, but it's meant to be enjoyed. This is evidence that, God, that you're witnessing God's unknowing power and has said love for you. And sometimes he adds extra things to make it personal, like bioluminescent planktons. <laughs> Why? You didn't have to do that. But he knew that a group of people from Sedaris is going to go on a backpack tri backpacking trip the coast of Washington and freak out at night because they see things that glow when we splash the water. It was amazing. That is evidence of God's has said love in creation. Jesus often demonstrates his authority and power as son of God, the power that's outside of creation through the, his control of nature as well. He spoke peace to the wind and the waves when the disciples yelled out for help and it obeyed. He turned water into wine when mom asked for help and he obeyed. God separated the very seas that he contained to deliver his people out of bond, bondage from Egypt when they cry out for help and the waters obeyed. Couldn't he do this for us today? Psalm 33, 10 to 12 says, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. In politics, just as in creation, God's power is also working. Creation rests upon his divine word, but our history, our government, rests upon his divine plan. While working with pastors on this passage, I feel like they're sweating already on the side because I said the word politics. <laughs> I recognize that this portion can be a little bit sticky, especially verse 12. But please, please, don't disengage yet. Hear me out. 
And if you have any strong reactions, please send an email to david at sedaraschurch.com or ryan at sedaraschurch. They will happily take you out for coffee and have a conversation about you, uh, about this with you. So that's, that's disclaimer they told me to, that I can just throw it on them. Um, <laughs> but I believe... And that what the author is saying in verse 10 and 11 is parallel to the verse that I find in Proverbs 19.21. I have it in the Amplified Version, and it says, Many are the plans in a man's mind, but it's the Lord's purpose for him that will stand, that will be carried out. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. No amount of human plans or schemes, even with all their strength, can overcome God's plan and purpose for his people. Just as God's divine word put creation into place for a purpose, his divine uh, plan puts men's scheme into place for a purpose. Case in point, once again, the deliverance of the Israelites out of Exodus. Egypt was one of the most powerful nations at that time. And yet, they, not even they, could stop God's plan for his people God's love for his people. And guess what? He remains faithful until today. He remains faithful to the covenant he's made with the Israelites. Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, said that he enjoyed quoting the answer from another person. So this is like meta meta quote um, from a guy named Frederick the Great, a king from the 1700s, when his personal physician asked him, Tell me what proof do you have of the existence of God? And he answered the Jews. Israel was not always faithful. But today, even today, they consider themselves a secular nation. But God remains faithful to them. They're still here. They still exist. And God has not given up on them. How amazing is that? The evidence of God's power and his steadfast love is present over history, over man's schemes, over government and worldly affairs. Then verse 12. You could look at verse 12 and say, obviously that refers to exclusively to the Israelite nation. Or you could even say it's referring to a Christian nation. But I believe it's much more relational than that. In commentaries, they've, had, they've indicated that this verse is more of a conclusion verse of the truth that we will begin to understand about the relationship with, relationship with us, or God's relationship with us as individuals. It's a verse that's more inclusive than you think. It's pointing to a group of people that look to God as their personal savior. And this is where verse 13 begins to talk about the power of God in a more personal and relational level, his divine purpose for us as individuals. And this, this is honestly my favorite part of the verses. Verse 13 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. For where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He forms the hearts of them all, and he considers all their deeds. God considers, God is concerned with the individual. He sees every single person inhabiting on this earth. In verse 15, when he says fashions, it's the same word found in Genesis 2, 7, when the Lord formed or fashioned man out of dust from the ground. 
God uniquely crafts each and every person here on earth. He is the one that shaped our hearts and formed our minds. And if God created man, he created their mind, and he created their heart, then God is the only one that can truly understand and discern it. I don't know about you, but I find this so comforting. Because as humans, we can sympathize and empathize with one another um, in shared experience to a certain degree. But you will never know what's going on in my mind or my heart, not even my husband. I think one day that I'm okay. I walk into a meeting and suddenly someone asks me, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm fine. And they'll say, how are you really? And all of a sudden, two hours have passed by, and I'm crying about something that happened to me 25 years ago. What is going on in my mind? What is going on in my heart? I thank God that when I come to him, I can be reassured that he knows. He knows even if I don't know. He's the one that truly sees and understands. He's not looking at us over humanity with eyes of judgment ready to strike. He's watching out for those who cry out to him, ready to help. The author begins to list down the things that people usually, in those days, trusted in. 16, 33, 16 says, The king is not saved by his great army, a warrior not delivered by his great strength. The war horse, the horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great, by its great power. In the Old Testament, this makes sense. Again, story of Exodus. There's a female worship leader named Miriam, and she led a song titled The Song of the Sea. And in this song, she recognized that the Lord is the only one true warrior, and the Pharaoh and his armies and horses were no match for God's divine power and plan and purpose for his people. Another great female worship leader, shout out to all the female worship leaders out there. We go back, way, way back. It's called the Song of Deborah, where their enemies, their enemy kings fought with their armies and horses, and the Israelites had nothing but the word of God. And yet, their enemies were defeated because their people relied, looked to Yahweh. We're not living under an earthly monarchy unless we're in UK or something. Um, most of us don't own horses. I think a few of you do. Um, and our chariots today have four wheels and require a lot of gas to use. So how does this relate to us today? What we think of today as being great is just as incapable of saving us today as it was before. Human power, earthly efforts can only get us so far. We live, definitely live in a, a day and age where we have so much access to so much resources. We're more capable now than ever to create a world that seems great, that looks great. We find ways to make things happen, but nothing, nothing compares to trusting in the power of God. Cars in 10 or 15 years will fail you. I was literally in a car with Pastor Ryan last week. We were talking about how hot it is, and his aircon failed just as you were talking about it. Friendships will fail you. Your family could fail you. Your own body could fail you. But his has said love will never fail you. And you may think in your current present circumstance, this isn't true. I encourage you today to maybe consider 
Maybe it's not his love that is failing you, but it's your failure in trusting in his love. An example is in King Solomon. King David was obviously not a perfect example of a king, but in every ways also a perfect example of king, of a king, a great king who trusted in God, who turned to God, who cried out in God, who looked to God to be his savior. And his reign was mighty and magnificent. And his son, King Solomon, in all his riches and glory and wisdom, he was one of the greatest king to ever rule in his time. He, he trusted in horses. He trusted in chariots. He trusted in his own flesh and his own ways. And eventually, this led to the downfall of the whole kingdom of Israel. So are we really trusting God today? For those of us who are, I believe everyone here is, there is a hope that we can hold to. Psalm 33, 18-19 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is, the one, is on the one who fears him, the one who hopes in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. God is looking out for people who are looking out to him. Only he can truly save the author says that his eye is on him so that he can deliver, rescue them from death. It was easy to point at this and say, yes, this is almost like a messianic prophecy of what Christ would do for us. But I truly believe in that because I realize logically it doesn't make sense. You should probably say, God will keep us alive in famine, provide for us, and then help us not die or live a long life. But the author straight up goes to the adversary. He says, God will save them from death. Points to Jesus. It points to the power of God, the only power in this whole universe that is capable of saving us from death. This is an evidence of God's faithful love. The psalmist begins his conclusion. Oh, I'm almost ending. <laughs> says here in 2021, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in, holy, in his holy name. The word wait here is translated into hope. After proving, after seeing his evidence of his power and his love through creation, through history, through hum humanity, he's imploring now on the faithful love of God to us, to our souls, the we the you and the me. And he, he makes this conclusion that his present disposition and his commitment for the future is that I have decided to hope in you, Yahweh. I have decided that you are the power I trust in. It is in that power and that understanding of your faithfulness I use as a shield to cover me, to protect me. Verse 21 reveals what, what is produced in our hearts when we truly put our trust in his holy name, his great name, Yahweh, the I am, what is produced is joy, gladness, happiness, rejoicing. Are we rejoicing? Are we singing with gladness in, in our hearts? Psalm 33, the last verse, Psalm 32, 22. He then turns to God, and he speaks directly to him, and he says, May your 
faithful love rests on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. This whole psalm was 21 verses about God, about his power, about his love, about his goodness. And finally, he addresses God per- personally. This is what waiting, this is what trusting and hoping in God looks like. It's not active, sorry, it's not passive, but it's active and it's engaging in knowing who God is and then it's speaking to him. It's to place all our expectation, our life, our hope, our future in his hands and wait expectantly with joy of what he's going to do with it. Don't disengage with God when trials and challenges arise, but hold up the shield of his faithful love. Stand in joyful confidence, knowing that he did, he can do it, he has done it, and he will show himself in your life in a powerful way. And to actually end this, I have three ways you can personally experience the power of God in your life, which, which was my second biggest point. How do I experience God personally in my life? The first is engaging God. Just like the psalmist, he turns to God personally. He turns to him in prayer. He talks to him. Oftentimes, we talk a lot about God, but not to God or with God. Stop looking at what he hasn't done in your life and begin to look at where you're at now, how far you've come and why you're here. I guarantee you, no matter how bad your past looks like, if you begin to be intentional in looking out for the Hesed love of God present in your life, you would be surprised at the evidences of his love and power that's already been working in your life before you even got to know him. I know this personally because I'm tempted to look back at my life and think that God wasn't there. I grew up in a broken family. I was um, made out of wedlock. <laughs> and when my mother was pregnant with me, by, at that time my father had already um, told a lot of his other lovers to just get rid of the child. And for some reason, he was about to say that to my mom, but his heart changed. <laughs> and he said, meh, maybe I want to keep this one. It's very encouraging, I know. (laughs) He proceeded to take me away from my mom, robbing me of a life I could have experienced, of being secured in a love from my own mother. And then I hear his his words, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you, Tylene, as prophet to the nations. And now I can see, yes, God has said love has been working in my life. I did not have the security of a mother's love, but I had the security of God's love. He chose me even before I was born, even before I was formed. His divine plan and purpose for me overrided the schemes of man, of my father. Now I stand here. <laughs> before you as a prophet to Sedaris, <laughs> to Seattle. But Jesus too, he came into this earth as a baby in the manger. There was a word, there was a plan, there was a promise, a purpose on his life. And he waited 30 years before 
that plan even began. And yet, as a child, he knew to look out for his father's has said love and engage with God, which you can read the story in Luke 2 of him as a child, already knowing who his father, heavenly father was. The second thing is engage in his word. Engage in God, engage in his word. Read his word. This may sound like a Sunday school preaching, but read your Bible every day if you can. Let it stir your heart up with a desire to see his power work in your life the way it worked in all these people's lives. That's what I did. I was like, God, if you did that to them, if you could make a way for them, you could make a way for me. Get his word in your mind, in your heart. That's when you begin to understand how he works. That's, begin, that's when you begin to understand how he speaks to you. Find a promise and a truth and begin to meditate on it day and night. Speak it out. Repeat it over yourself out loud, especially in times when the enemy is there with his lies saying it's never going to happen. You're never going to get better. It's always going to be this way. You don't even deserve to get married. Look at your life. Everything is broken. How easy it is for us to meditate and repeat the negative things in our life, in our situation, over ourselves. And then we wonder, why do I have worry? Why do I have fear? Why do I have anxiety? Why do I have depression right now? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you want to build your faith, hear it. Say it out loud. Sing that song over your soul. Let pastors speak to your heart on a Sunday morning. Jesus says that faith can move mountains, can move creation. Faith unleashes the power of God in your life. It has the ability to change any circumstance in your life that seems impossible or immovable. The Bible says faith, with faith, nothing is impossible. Stay engaged, stay connected with the community of believers, especially in your lowest moments. They're the ones that are going to remind you of the promise of God. They're the ones that are going to pray for you, encourage you. They're the ones that are going to sing over you and build you up. Even Jesus, he knew that he, there's a time that he is going to give up his life and he's going to pay for the sins of the world, but yet he didn't stay in a cave and was worried about it for three years. He engaged in life. He obeyed the Lord. He trusted. He followed the Spirit. He did what God called him to do, to preach, to teach, and he stayed engaged with his community. He trusted in God's word not even in his own power, even when he was tempted by the enemy in the wilderness. The answer to every question of doubt that the devil came, came up to him with was, it is written. Engage in his word. And the third one is, engage with the spirit. There is no way to experience the fullness of God's power in your life as a believer without the Holy Spirit. The moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart and becomes one with your spirit. But oftentimes, believers forget that he's even there. Jesus relied 100% on the power of God through the Holy Spirit. He didn't even start his ministry until he was baptized and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. He talked about the Holy Spirit a lot. 
He says that even when I leave, God will send you the spirit that's like me. He will teach you. He will comfort you. He'll convict you of sin. He'll remind you of my words, my promises. He'll be a witness to confirm in your spirit that, yes, you are a child of God, and you can cry out to God, Abba, Father, I rely on your said love. And it is in that very spirit that confirms that, yes, Jesus is alive, and he is coming back. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't do nothing. And engaging in him means yielding in his ways, trusting when he's tugging on your heart, when he's speaking in your mind. We can't control the Holy Spirit. We can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. We can't even argue with the Holy Spirit. He'll let you have your way if you decide not to follow his. Zechariah 4, 6 says, This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, your own force. It is not by your own strength, not even by your own might, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, that he will accomplish what he promises. (laughs) Jesus trusted in the Holy Spirit. 30 years of waiting for his ministry to start, three years of waiting for his time on the cross, and then now Jesus finds himself three years days waiting for the power of God in hell. Three days. He knew, he trusted in the promise of resurrection. He knew, he trusted in the power of God to rescue him from Sheol. Whatever situation we may think we are in our waiting, I don't think it's as worse as waiting in literal hell. Because of Christ's obedience and trust, I don't know why I wrote it this way. I said, today we can have, we can see a full HD 4K 4D picture of God's has said love. That's the only way I can explain it because I work in media and I'm a very visual person. <laughs> the same spirit that was present in creation is the same spirit that led Israelites in the desert. Is the same spirit that was working in Deborah to prophesy is the same spirit that Jesus relied on to be raised from the dead. And it is that very same spirit that is within us, available for you and me today. Romans 8.11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from dead now lives in only the holy people. No. It says, now lives in you then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. The power of God's faithful love is present. And now to end, we're going to look back at the, verse, the first three verses that we were talking about. Joy, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Pray. From the up, praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with lyre. Make music to him with a ten-string harp or maybe a acoustic guitar with a bass. Altogether, that's still nine. And also a violin. I think that's ten, 13 strings. There we go. Sing a new song to him. Who are the righteous and the upright ones? They are those who first and foremost rely on God who call on the name of God, to look to God for help. The upright, the righteous ones, are the ones that see God, only God, as their Savior, Lord and Savior. 
the author then encourages all of us to fully engage in the worship of God with everything that we have. Play loud. Don't worry about the person next to you. Sing loud. Play skillfully. He says to sing a new song. Pastor Ryan noted that this year alone, Sidaris has introduced 20 new songs. Hallelujah. We know, we see, we experience the power of God. Sing about his creative, dynamic power that is consistent and, and new every day. Even with the, with the old songs, we can sing with this renewed witness and testimony of his faithful love in our life. We are called to experience new depths and heights and widths of his love every day and sing about it and shout about it. Is your heart rejoicing? Is your heart happy and glad? Are you trusting in the Lord? If not, cry out to him because he is literally waiting on you. The question is not, can he do it? We've seen it clearly. He can. He will. He's committed. The question is, are you trusting in him? Are you betting your life on his words? Are you relying on his peculiar wisdoms and his perpetual power? Or are you relying on your own limited capacity and capability? Are you partnering with the Holy Spirit? Are you partnering with your flesh? If he can make something out of nothing, he can make something out of you and me. If he can turn water into wine, he can turn mourning into dancing, weeping into laughter. If he parted the seas for his people, he can make a way for you now. Wait upon him, expect on him. I wait every day. I hope every day. I imagine every day the day I get to be with my husband in this church and worship next to him. I wait for the promise of children in my arms. I hope he's done so much already in my life. His power and his love is evident in my life, which is why I give it all to him. This is why I trust in him. I know he has a purpose for me. In a way, this is why sometimes when there's problems and challenges and things arise, I just, I just sing like a crazy person. <laughs> I just sing to remind my soul that God will provide, and not only that, he sees, he sees my deepest heart, and he understands and he knows what's going on in my mind, even if I can't express it or explain it. I see his love in the beauty of Washington. I see his love in the way people in Sedaris have loved me and accepted me and have supported me. I know, I know that I have a future and a hope in the Lord. More than that, I know the promise that he has for me and for all of us. He's going to make a new earth. He's going to establish a new kingdom. 
And there's going to be a new time and a new reign where our King of Kings and Lord of Lords is victorious forever. And he's going to give us worshipers, past, present, and future, new and resurrected bodies. That is the power and faithfulness of God's has said love for us.